1: Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our
2: conversation
1: on big social issues. This is part two of our conversation on the basics of bad faith. In part one, one of our hosts, Emil Sherman, really teased out what they are. So if you missed that, I really encourage you to press pause and go back to that last episode, have a listen as it will contextualize what you're about to hear. For everyone else, today Lloyd is meeting our guests on the couch to ask some personal and edgy questions. Enjoy.
0: Danielle, Tim, thank you so much for that conversation with Emil. Um, What I'd love to do is explore some of those concepts a little further and also talk more in depth about the principle of charity itself. You know, Tim, I think your concept around does bad faith beat good faith, which as I understand what you're saying is bad faith does beat good faith, and that comes to obviously in part to Emil's comment around the prisoner's dilemma, game theory you know, two games, you're either going to be cooperative or you're going to be competitive. I I probably have a different perspective here, is that I think when you, sometimes it's quite dualistic to say good or bad faith. I think sometimes we need to have neutral faith. And that is when we're dealing with people who we do suspect as having bad faith, who could be extremely malicious, having good faith, for example, and then being, abused or being taken advantage of the the long term effect of that is pretty severe meaning our experience of pain can be so severe we don't enter into other charitable conversations and so in one sense being cautious sometimes helps because the last thing we need is for me to be so injured that i never then practice the principle of charity again and so i think just having that meta awareness of that this could be, and so I'm not going in either with, with good faith here, but I, at times I need to go in with neutral faith matters. The other point that, that I think is really relevant was, was a comment you made. In my experience, people who have bad faith, I think we underestimate this, and I think you used the word social capital. The way to actually get the conversation going is for them sometimes just to like you. And that means you have to have social chit-chat, right? And I often find that intellectuals are not very good at social chit-chat. Like they're so intense. They don't want to talk about the weather. They don't want to talk about light things. They don't want to give something away. They don't want to be kind. They don't want to go buy, you know, make the person a cup of tea or buy them a cup of coffee. All of that, right, is what I would call social capital. And in my experience, Every individual I know who has been brilliant at people with bad faith, and let's, let's take Nelson Mandela as an example, use social capital all the time. They were friendly. They were hospitable. They smiled. They said, how can I help you? They, they gave their, their, their God's things. That matters, and I think it is underestimated in how you work the principle of charity. Lloyd,
1: I, I love that, and I could not agree more. I think it's such an important idea around the chit-chat. And you're absolutely right. Intellectuals don't engage in that chit-chat very much. And I think there's a a couple of reasons for that. So first of all, I did say sometimes when you're having... So, okay, let me just step back a little bit. What kinds of conversations are we having where this good faith, bad faith comes in? Usually they're the conversations, these higher-level conversations about truth, about understanding. But that's not the only kind of discourse that we have when we engage with other people. In fact, it's pretty rare that we engage in that real tete-a-tete kind of discourse. The vast majority of communication that we have is of two other kinds of natures. One is the little transactional things. Oh, can I pick you up at 4 o'clock? No, I can make it 4.30. Can you get a banana for me on the way home? Yes, great, right? We do a lot of that, kind of just procedural stuff, just life-supporting. But the bulk of our conversation with other people is what I just call social discourse, and the rules are very different. This is about relationships; it's not about truth, and it's that kind of discourse—the chit chat—which is so important when when it comes to building social capital. Lloyd, I totally agree, and Mandela, I think, was the master of this. Yeah, he
0: was. He was absolutely So was Tutu, you know, from South so Africa. was Tutu. These people—they they could engage with people across. They could laugh at jokes. They could laugh at themselves. They discount, they were just very good at activating in a very practical way the principle of charity.
1: And that's where, when we're engaged with bad faith, that's why I said maybe we need to have a different conversation, that stepping out into the social discourse, to build that trust, to diffuse tension, diffuse feelings of insecurity, threat, lower those levels of defensiveness. And at that point we can engage with good faith discourse. And the reason I think intellectuals, something I learned studying philosophy for over many many years is one thing that you learn that you don't get told that you learn is you get is you learn how to engage with people in a seminar room along this idea of kind of truth seeking understanding discourse that's the norm in the seminar room and the norms in that room are quite different you can give us a, a, a talk and you will be shredded in the question time and you'll love it and they'll love it because what you have learned mm as a philosopher is not just the history of philosophy and particular theories and stuff. You've learnt how to show the right, use the right kind of language, show the right kind of respect, get into the right kind of stance and know that your your conversation partner is in the same stance that you can immediately jump to that higher level of discourse without the chit-chat. So I think mm. a lot of academics don't need to do that when they're in the seminar room. They don't need to say, oh, how are you, how are your kids? You know, They don't have to build the social capital before they tear someone's argument down, and they forget that they do need to do that when they're in the wild, when they're outside of the seminar room.
0: The norm in academia is discussion. The norm is critique. The norm is deconstruction. So to your point about norm, that's the culture I'm stepping in, but that is not always the culture for everyone else.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. If you do that over the dinner table, if you t- treat the dinner table like a seminar, and believe me, I've tried, it doesn't Enough. go down well.
0: Yeah, no, I've also tried. <laughs> Can we move the the conversation to you, Danielle, just because uh, you, you've got a lot of experience in this in the sort of coalface of the festivals, like Festival of Dangerous Ideas, where you are bringing um, speakers together who have different viewpoints, who some, I imagine, are... Expousing or or demonstrating the principle of charity and, you know, with good faith and some with bad faith. How do you see this in the field?
2: I mean, yeah, it's really interesting listening to Tim and, you know, we talk about this a fair bit uh, in terms of with the festival. There's all the bits that you can control for, that you try and control for. And this is where I love working with philosophers as well because the ideas and the ideals sometimes don't Work in reality, <laughs> and so what? What do you, what do you mean? What? I know. <laughs> so, so, so with the festival, you know, we make sure that everybody who's coming is really aware that they're going to be stepping and sharing a stage with people with whom they may not share the same point of view. Like being really upfront and creating that space and that shared space on the stage, so that they know that that's what they're stepping into. So this is the arena this is the seminar room if you like and um, this is the expectation so if you're going to have a problem with some of with, with being and sharing a stage or being part of a festival where you may come up against people with whom you don't share the same view this is not the festival for you and um, I feel like that's really become even more important over the last couple of years to, to explicitly say and I'm really explicit about that um, and that tends to be the first step that kind of can help make sure that everyone's understanding the environment there but the things that we can't control for things like some some parts of with the audience now of course you hope as I said it's it has it on the tin it's the Festival of Dangerous Ideas that people are coming because they're wanting and willing to engage in a way that has those elements of respect and good faith and um, charity you know and so I, I, I constantly think, is there some sort of ritual or something that they could do at the entrance of the event that would mean that they are, like, willfully engaged? Yeah. Like, there's, there's again, there's nothing that, you know, you're not going to be able to behave like that. You have to listen. You have to respect. But you also have to challenge and you're welcome to challenge. So there's no point in just saying it all has to be one way. And, you know, when you're creating these events, inv- for the general public that idea of just you know you sit there and you listen well we're not in the seminar room this isn't this isn't this isn't the same kind of thing but the things that we can't control for are the media our social media particularly and those things had a dramatic effect on the on the history of the festival there's been 11 festivals since 2009 and there's one you know the only time we've ever cancelled something happened because the bad faith, the willful bad faith that happened around deliberately misconstruing what a session would be without even allowing an opportunity to explain the intentions or anything meant that we the, the session couldn't go ahead any longer in the way that it was intended.
0: Can you tell and us so which she, session that was, Danielle?
2: Yeah, sure. So the session was um, honour killings are morally justified so, and this uh, the, the consequence of this was that it's you making
0: know, our podcast sound tame. This is I'm <laughs> this.
2: the consequence <laughs> of this was that you know what the intention of the talk was to kind of use this very you know it was definitely a, a hook. We are selling tickets to this, so there is an element of needing to, to to get people's attention. But if you went beyond the title of the talk and you read the blurb, and you you you, you would have understood that we were also going to be talking about. You know, killing in the name of your country, killing in the name of all of these different forms of uh, honour uh. that we kill in. And so, you know, it's using this kind of thing that we, you know, it, particularly in Western culture, get very uh, head up about, understandably, as the lure to do that. Now what we realised is that we could no longer behave in that way uh, with this era of social media that started with these kind of sensationalised titles because we were expecting That people would read beyond the title and that just doesn't happen in the world of Twitter X as it's now called it just doesn't happen and so we had to adapt rather than expecting that anybody else was going to adapt to kind of realizing that that this is the title this is the deliberate kind of provocation and now you need to like read deeper see who's speaking attend the session and then you can make up your own mind about whether this argument was, you know, a good argument or a bad argument.
0: Danielle, if, if, thank you, Danielle, if we had a scale of zero to 10 and on, and the spectrum was danger, what are the prisms or the criteria for the most dangerous idea? I mean, how do you choose what is a dangerous idea? Do you have, do you have a criteria?
2: Yeah, we, we have a curatorial framework um, that we work within and that has led us to put some things and some things out. I mean, the first and foremost thing is we wouldn't platform anybody that denies somebody's in their rights, human rights. If somebody's going to stand up and say, you know, something that's blatantly racist or uh, it's going to cause and incite violence to a group, that's not for us. You know, I'm going to give you the really, when when new staff start with us and trying to explain what a dangerous idea is, and they're not philosophers, I usually say it's those ideas which make you go, ouch. They sort of make you go, somebody says something like, honor killings are morally justified and you go, ouch. And then you go, huh. And then you go, hmm oh, you sort of, and this is this is what makes something dangerous because you immediately have a reaction to the statement or you immediately have a presumption because it's from all of the things that, that Tim was talking about, your, your morals and your worldview and where you, what you've absorbed, that you haven't actually questioned things. And then once you're taken through the arguments, you then go, hmm, okay, so... Like I can see that maybe there's a different way of looking at this and that's where the, the, the danger often lies in how you've, right. you know, assumed the knowledge that you have right. in, in your reaction to this provocation or this right. statement.
0: Well, have you had the experience where you thought a dangerous idea was dangerous but, in fact, it wasn't? It wasn't you know, when you, when you put it on, it actually turned out it wasn't dangerous at all. It, just it,
2: happens, uh, it happens all the time, really, because what's dangerous to you might be really different to me. And this is one of the tensions with the festival where some people will be going, well, that's not dangerous at all. But for a whole bunch of different people, that would be a really dangerous idea and a dangerous concept. Mm-hmm. And I think that at the moment, as we know, things are fragmenting more and more in terms of where we're getting our media and the access to information that we have. So less and less are we all sharing the, the the status quo is a very fast moving beast now mm. and so from the time that you plan the festival to when you put it on things mm. can kind of happen mm. um but the some of the wicked problems that we address you know they're all the time uh, you know looking at some last year you know we had a session around pedophilia and Helping pedophiles before they offend. Now, you know, there's this thing of like, even in polite society, it feels dangerous to even talk about that, let alone talk about that in a setting with lots of different people. So, when we're approaching these sorts of topics, we think really carefully about the people that are going to be on stage and what they can bring to it. But it's a dangerous idea because even just thinking about it again through that different lens and giving people the opportunity to kind of, you know, have a moment and sit within that um, uncomfortability is, is, is really challenging. But I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a dangerous idea, you know, but even but talking about it mm. and bringing people that, bring that to light <clears> in a public discussion for the general public is, you
0: know. Yeah. Danielle, you, you've, you've dealt a lot with some of the big thought leaders, uh, global thought leaders, Chomsky, Rashdi, Jermaine Greer. We have this conversation before we put on guests how do you know if a thought leader is going to be dull? <laughs>
2: uh, well, you do your re- you do your research, and that's what I will be helping you with. <laughs>
0: uh, so, is is yeah. it that they don't have the right voice, or they? Don't...
2: <laughs> no, I mean, I think there's a different. There's again, there's different reasons why you put certain people on or give them that platform. I mean, we did an uh, I did an event with Stephen Hawkins as a hologram. Now, Stephen Hawkins, obviously, it, you know had there was going to be you know ways of how he could communicate and things that meant that it was going to be a very different kind of event it had to be a hologram because it was cool but also because there was no way for him to travel here to be live and to do that and so you you know you you think about how you can you know help amplify the best bits but also I think that And I think this is across a lot of the work that I've done, you know, creating large scale immersive events, festivals like the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, you know, dance parties, things like that. We seem to be so afraid of the idea of putting people in uncomfortable situations. Mm. And I'm so fascinated with, I guess, the charity that you can give audience members with just the simple kind of you know message of like okay here's the rules don't be a dickhead go for it now yep. yep and letting and letting the crowd sort themselves out and one of the big things about creating those sorts of spaces and those sorts of events is really thinking about okay what are the consequences if that happens but also as we've been talking about like signaling through Body language, signalling literally through signs, through pre-messages, through planted guests, through the colour scheme, through all of these sorts of things that you're taking in to show what kind of behaviour is going to be acceptable in this place and how you can kind of get that going. I recently gave some feedback to a festival where... You know, it was great in that, you know, people walking around and having a great time and fire pits and stuff, but there just wasn't enough entertainment. And I said, There's, you're going to have a problem if you don't add a bit more entertainment into a here. Too, because, a
0: little too intense.
2: Yeah, well, it could go, it could yeah. flip the other way just yeah. for a second. But, yeah, so you sort of, I'm really interested, and I think in yeah. this day and age we do kind of over, you know, we take, we, we, we take the uncomfortable out so much because we're so afraid of putting in people in that kind of situation. Because what if we haven't thought through all of the ways to kind yeah. of, yeah. you know, eliminate that. And I think that that could be a real problem Good. for us well, all. Danielle,
0: Danielle, I'm gonna we're welcoming you into the principle <laughs> of charity and we want you to give, particularly Emil and, and myself, lots of feedback when we are in too intense, because I think we orientated to intensity. Tim, I want to just move to you and for a moment, and we set this podcast up, The Principle of Charity, in part, our core intent was a mechanism, even in the smallest percentage to reduce polarization. Let me turn that on its head as a moral philosopher. When is polarization good? Oh,
1: well, as a philosopher, I'm beholden to ask: What do we mean by polarization? Oh my God!
0: Yes, <laughs> but I, I think I okay, can um, uh, answer that. Not yeah. being a philosopher, then.
1: <laughs> well, look. I think, um, given my views, that there are no, there's no one single right answer to how we should live that applies to all people at all times. Then, difference and diversity is inevitable. And so that can produce a kind of polarisation. That can produce a polarisation between, um, you know, whether we should have more hierarchical or more egalitarian kinds of societies. There may be no one right answer Mm. for all people, but some people will feel very strongly about one or the other. Now, the tension between those can be healthy. Because if it is really difficult to know exactly which is the right answer or not the right answer, if it's difficult to know what kind of stuff we should apply right now, we've got to actually put rubber on the road at some point. What should we actually do? How hierarchical should we be? Having that polarisation will encourage us to make sure that we, are, we don't get stuck in one answer. Mm. We'll have other views. The Overton window, as they say, will be wider. It'll admit more kinds of views into the conversation. Polarisation becomes toxic. Only when you add black and white thinking, when you add the black and white such that my view is absolutely right, you cannot possibly, you know, have any, any, you know, view that can compete with mine, then the polarization switches from a kind of a disagreement to conflict. Mm. And so this, this happens a lot when we're, when we're talking is we mistake disagreements around ideas or around truth or understanding with conflicts of interest. And mm. this is where someone's like, I'm no longer really interested in engaging with an idea. I'm now defending my territory. That's where polarization on the black and white can become toxic. But if you have polarization with some acknowledgment, of the complexity and ambiguity of the world and the individual differences that we bring to the world psychologically and the different kinds of environments that we live in. I mean, interestingly, you can live in the same city and have different social ecologies in, in different suburbs, in different areas, in different communities. You can have two communities coexisting in the same suburb, or a wealthy and a, and a poorer community, and they can have different social ecologies. We want that tension to play out as long as we don't lock it in with mm. black and white thinking.
0: Mm. Okay. Okay. Sort of come back to a statement that Emil made and in conversation with you. And, you know, you were both speaking about morality as contingent. But I assume, you know, coming also from the work of Jonathan Haidt, that some morality isn't contingent, it's universal. Is there is there are there any morals that are just universal across all societies? Look, it's a good question. And if you ask it descriptively, so
1: if we surveyed the moral systems that exist today and all the moral systems that have existed throughout history, you know, I've looked, I've looked really hard and there's a lot of amazing anthropology, moral anthropology, Mm, looking mm, at mm. these different things. Uh, Edward uh, Westermark, a Finnish sociologist and moral philosopher, wrote an amazing two-part volume about the origin of moral ideas where he surveyed the literature. Now, I mean, he did this. 1906 or something so you know it's it's not necessarily the most unproblematic literature that he's drawing on in terms of its assumptions about different communities but I've looked really hard and I can't find a single rule that has been used in every society anywhere everywhere in the world so you know you can even think like prohibitions against killing your mates. No, there are some cultures where killing was just okay. You just kill and it's fine and maybe it's a status or a power thing or whatever it was and it was it was justified. Now, if we go normatively, I think a lot of those cultures got certain things wrong, either about the fundamentals of humanity and, and our inherent kind of dignity or they got things wrong about the kinds of environments they were living in and they were promoting rules that were actually promoting suffering or, you know, lack of cooperation or any, any, any other kinds of things that, that we, we care about. So now if we use those as qualifiers, then, yes, I think there are some universal rules. I, I, I hesitate to name them because they're really difficult to name, but I do think that, for example, a rule that says something like we need to respect the, the vulnerability and the possibility of suffering in others... Is, is something that is universal. It doesn't mean that it's, it trumps everything else, but I think that is a universal moral mm. concern, and there are others. But it's, it's not easy to, 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 to name them in such a way that has no exception, and okay. that is, to me, the nature of the complexity of morality.
0: Let's, let's maybe get to you personally. At a personal level, at a Tim level, what's the biggest moral trade-off you've had to make in the last few years? in your life
1: oh goodness uh the biggest moral trade-off that i've had to make
0: moral or ethical trade-off
1: look i don't know if it's the biggest but i bought a home (laughs) not so long ago and it was a very interesting emotional experience because i felt simultaneously the great injustice of the housing system and how this one economic lever is promoting so much suffering in the modern world and that if housing was half the price that it is today, we would be living incredibly different lives. People would be working less. They'd be spending more time with their family. Communities would be stronger. People would be more respected in the work that they do. They'd have less risk in the careers that they take. So many different things that encourage human flourishing would change. And I'm so opposed to the financialization of property, but yet I had to fall in with it or get run over Mm. by it. Mm, and mm. falling in with it meant that I did have to kind of compromise my values a little mm, bit mm. by engaging in a system that I think is is fundamentally problematic and unjust mm. and I felt some guilt around that but I also felt some relief mm. that I'm, I'm now, I now have a modicum of mm. safety and I feel really bad for those who don't have the modicum of safety that I've been able to achieve. I don't know if that's the biggest,
0: mm. that's the first that came okay. to me. Okay, good. Thank you. When it just talk a little bit about philosophy um, and it, it, it's a sort of gripe I have, and maybe I just don't have, I just don't have the IQ. I often can't understand what philosophers talk about. Honestly, I just don't get it. It's too obtuse. I just looked up a book I bought about 10 years ago in preparation for this podcast on how to make good arguments. It had so much maths and, Diagrams and it was like, ma. I just like gave up. How come you so uh, articulate and easy to understand? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very,
1: very kind, Lloyd, because because um,
0: Lloyd, because I also don't understand a lot of stuff that philosophers say. Um, what what, what, it- what is it about the profession, or am I just being too harsh and uncharitable?
1: Look, no, I think that there are a couple of things going on. One is that. So one way I think about the difference between science and philosophy, because I think they're contiguous, is you ask the question why. Why is something happening? And you try to find an answer to that. And science will keep asking why until we run out of empirical evidence. That's the limits. Philosophy doesn't have that limit. It will keep asking why beyond the empirical. It will keep asking why to the limits of possible thinking. And so when we're in the philosophical territory, when we're in the philosopher's zone, it's, it's going to be pushing the very limits of our understanding. So that's one. The nature of the subject is is difficult. And another kind of cor- corollary to that is that the scope of philosophy is infinite. So any subject it can touch upon, it can reach into. So we sometimes think of philosophy as one subject. It's actually the meta-subject. The other thing that I think pushes it is the jargon aspect is there's a lot of signalling in philosophy. It's hard to know whether someone is a good philosopher or not. And so a lot of philosophers kind of obfuscate and they try to look really you know, smart, they look difficult, they use complex language, they coin their own terms. Sometimes they need to coin their own terms because there is no language
0: that no, helps I explain think their ideas. I often think they're very smart when I don't understand them. But, Lloyd, look, can I, I have to jump in, Lloyd, and say I know you're going to jump and in. I challenge you here because oh, no. <laughs> I I don't know where you have the arrogance to assume that you should understand what philosophers are talking about. I mean, I don't have the hubris to think that I'm going to open up a textbook on anything, you know, on on any discipline that is complex and incredibly detailed and think that I should be able to understand. it. Why should you be able to understand? No, I think that's actually a good point. point. I'll, I'll take, I'll, t- I'll take your point there. I think that, that, that is, that that's a good point for me to consider. However, here's my yes, but, um, <laughs> so I'm saying big, yes, small, but I, I, I agree with you. I will definitely reflect on that. I think that's true. If I think about cancer and nuclear physics, yes, there's not even a chance I can understand all the intricacies of it. However, there are many philosophers who are in the public domain, who speak in the public domain, and I'll turn that on its head. There is an arrogance when they assume that I should understand their jargon, but are actually in the public domain. I think that is living in your own space. Well and let me let me bring it back to that analogy. Timmy is not one of those for me. Well the the parallel with science
1: communication. So in the nineteen eighties and the nineteen nineties, scientists didn't think they needed to engage with the public. They were so focused on solving their problems and engaging mm. with the scientific community. Mm. And Carl Sagan comes along and he engages with the public and opens their eyes and everyone's great. But a lot of scientists got very envious. Of mm, Sagan, mm. And they actually denied him certain kind of positions and awards because of his perceived kind of vulgarisation of science. But then climate change came along and scientists were like, hey, world, you need to know about this and understand this and why aren't you listening? And they realised we need more Sagans. We don't mm. have the Sagans. And there's now an entire flourishing industry of science communication where they deliberately train people in science and communication to be able to engage with the public. Mm, mm. There is no similar course for philosophy communication yeah. so one reason that, that, that i speak the way i do is because i've been trained to speak the way i do because i've worked as a journalist
0: for so many years and i hope to inspire more philosophers to do the same i'm going to ask one or two more questions tim i'll go to you first very briefly part of ethics is how to live a good life tell me the one thing you'd counsel me to do not to do to live a good life not to do What's the I one like thing I should, yeah, that I should just mm. like, if I see it, I won't do it. I shouldn't, I just get rid of it. So give give me some, some advantage here.
1: Okay. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you a couple. One is don't trust your gut, question it, mm-hmm. because our gut will lead us towards the Tim Tams, not the fruit. And really our bodies will need the fruit, not the Tim Tams. I'll give you a a bonus one attached to that, which is because our bodies will still lean towards what's in front of us, put a bowl of fruit on the kitchen table, not a bowl of Tim Tams, and extend that metaphor to every aspect of your life. Put the good things in reach and the bad things out of reach. But the other is that the pursuit of happiness is probably bullshit. The pursuit of happiness will probably make you more miserable. It is understanding what you do want and should want that is, I think, the height of wisdom And when you reflect upon that and realize that many of our anxieties come from desiring and and pursuing happiness, that we can start to achieve and seek other ends, such as meaning or purpose or whatever it might be, and be willing to suffer to get there. And that will probably be a more fulfilled life.
0: That'll be a good life. Okay. Danielle, one key headline from you, principle of charity. You've listened to our podcast. What's one thing you think we should be doing better?
2: What oh goodness, that's really put me on the spot. Thanks, Lloyd. (laughs) (laughs) First day on the job, right? Here's your notes. Look, you know, look, I would love you and this podcast because I think every time I listen to one, and those gems that come out of the guests, as we've heard with today with Tim, those practical moments where you know people give you a really great practical tip. I'd love to bottle a little bit more of that mm. and, um, and share that a little bit more or a you. little bit wider. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think that just um, that question, Lloyd, that you asked Tim for that practical advice, I would love to see that incorporated for every guest, sharing the knowledge that we have, whether it's about making a perfect egg or living a good life.
0: Great. Tim, last question for you. Uh, we're eight months into the year. What have you learned this year that you didn't learn last year?
1: Oh, what have I learned this year? One of the things that I'm thinking a lot about at the moment is I'm thinking a lot about sex and gender. This is a topic that we're looking at really carefully at the Ethics Centre, and it touches on a lot of the themes we've talked about today in terms of charity and good faith. There's a change in the way a lot of people are seeing the world and expressing themselves, and that's challenging a lot of preconceived notions. And I grew up in a time when those kinds of questions weren't asked. And so I've been reading a lot of things, listening to a lot of people and talking to a lot of people. And I'm starting to change my views. I'm learning a lot about what it means to experience oneself in a more conscious and uncomfortable way that I never experienced. Because for me, it's just completely transparent. And I am still parsing and trying to make sense of that. But I'm opening myself now to think about things in a different way, and it, it, it's it's a it can be challenging to step from a position of kind of I've collapsed my views and I've got understanding to open up and to say now I'm in an ambiguous and uncertain space, but I'm leaning into that to see what I can learn.
0: On that note, I'm going to thank you, Tim. Thank you, Danielle. We are so looking forward to working with you. Uh, Thank you so much to both of you. Looking forward to getting going and to this partnership with the Ethics Centre.
1: Thanks for having us. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please rate us and leave a review. That is simply the best way to support the show and help it grow. See you soon.